All right, everyone, welcome, welcome, welcome back to another episode of the Peanut Gallery. Here we are again. I'm uh, sheltering at home. We're very far away in distance from my good friend, George Harder. George, how is it in the home that you are sheltering in place at? I'm perfectly comfortable. It's uh, nice and cool, and uh, I have a cold drink here. And uh, uh, so it's nice to be at the dining room table. Yes. And, you know, usually when I'm at the dining room table, I like a, you know, a bowl of pasta and a glass of, you know, Pinot Noir with me. But that is not the case this afternoon. No, this is uh, these are business hours. I try to stay away from the alcohol until after five. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get going so we can get back to that. Uh, so yes. today I thought we would talk a little bit about, you know, we're still in the middle of uh, the coronavirus pandemic, of course, which has affected everyone, all walks of life, specifically to you and I, uh, the business of gathering together the business of live theater. And I thought today we would talk about um, the effect that that may have on on the art and what the art might look like moving forward. And as a comparison, I thought it would make really the most sense to compare it to the last time we had something of this nature happen, which, of course, everyone always uh, talks about and compares this situation to perhaps the 1917-1918 flu pandemic, which coincided coincidentally, with the Great War, World War I. So I thought perhaps we would take a look back in history, uh, 112 years or so, and, and talk about the Great War and how that impacted art, whether that be uh, visual art, theater arts, or even perhaps music. Do you think you can talk a little bit about that? That's a, that is a fascinating point, and I, I think that there's a, there's a documentary uh, in there someplace I have not seen any books uh, written on this point, although I'm sure there are some that people don't realize how the Great War changed the arts worldwide, not only music and theater, but visual arts, everything. And there's a, an underlying reason for that. Uh, I can go over that uh, if you like. Um, first of all, a little bit of historical background. The United States got off pretty easy after the Great War. It uh, it only lost uh, a few hundred thousand men. I say only uh, a few hundred thousand men, but I mean, I say only because compared to Great Britain, Germany, France, uh, Russia, and uh, the other countries in Europe, which lost millions of people, and to, uh, and that doesn't even count the those who died from disease and starvation as a result of uh, these war-torn countries. Um, and the arts basically had to start over. It, it, it did two things. It, it created a, a stop to the arts and visual uh, music, theater arts, basically had to reinvent itself. But coupled with that is that composers, visual artists were free from the trappings of the past and were free to start over and create new kinds of art. Great example, no great war, no Picasso. Uh, No great war, no uh, innovative music by uh, Stravinsky. Uh, the, the Firebird, uh, uh, 
Gustav Holst wrote uh, The Planets, uh, which was especially the uh, Mars, the bringer of war, which was his musical depiction of the horrors of the Great War. And these two art forms that I, I just used as an example were radical departures from the romantic type symphonies that we had in Europe uh, during the late late 1800s. Uh, the visual arts, the avant-garde and, and the Dada movement in the visual arts were uh, radical departures from the uh, beautiful landscapes that were popular in Europe during the, the 1800s. Uh, so those are a couple of examples. So my overall point is, is that the Great War caused a radical change in the arts, not only because the arts had to start over, but also because artists of all kinds were free to reinvent new innovative art forms. Now, how, how does that affect the theater? Well, um, I think without the Great War, you would not have had the uh, operettas by uh, Kurt Weill and uh, his uh, collaborators, such as the most well-known example, the Three Penny Opera. That was radical music in the mid-1920s. And I don't think that that would have happened without uh, the influence of the Great War. That's uh, Those are all excellent points. I mean, of course, from a literary point of view, you think about someone like, you know, Ernest Hemingway, who who found his way into World War I at a very young age. And obviously most of his writing is impacted by his his time overseas and involved with the Great War. Now, that's the obvious point when you think about literature and what people are writing and write what you know and stuff like that. But a little bit earlier, you talked about, you know, no Great War, no Picasso. Um and, and visual artists of that nature. Why, why do you think that is? I mean, how, why do you think Picasso wouldn't have come to the same uh, conclusions or realizations or even fame had it not been for World War I? Because World War I so decimated Europe that there was basically nothing left of pop culture in, uh, in all these countries which took part. It pulled society's foundation out from under it. Do you think that, you know, when you talk about, and I've read a little bit about that too, saying it was a very romantic period in art before World War I, and music and art and everything became um, much more visceral and much more, they kind of highlighted cruelty in, in, in many ways. Is that just representative of what the world was like and reflective of all the horrors of the Great War? I would say so. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Yes. When you talk about, you know, the Great War being the first mechanized war, we've talked about that a lot, you know, the first war that really saw machine guns and and tanks and stuff like that. Um, to, 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 how do you think that, that that plays into, you know, life after the war, life after art? Where Where does that come into play? I think society was kind of uh, became a deer in the headlights because of uh, the Great War, if you don't mind that analogy to, to put it in some kind of context people might be able to understand. I, I think that you, you had these old 18th century military tactics 
but then you had these modern, uh, like you said, tanks, machine guns, airplanes, poison gas, but they were still basically in trenches, and then they would just in mass come out of the trenches and try, try to overrun the opponents on a battlefield. Uh, it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't guerrilla warfare, uh, but uh, so you had these old-fashioned military tactics with uh, all these mechanized methods of destruction. And then more about music specifically. I mean, you mentioned Gustav Holtz, Mars the Bringer of War. Um, talk a little bit about how that really is a personification of sorts of, of, of all that mechanization that you talked about and how it was so unique and, and really very much pioneering a, a new sound. Yes, with these, with uh, the great symphonies and uh, concertos, you have a, a, a wonderful melody and uh, uh, the waltz in Europe was certainly popular for dance, but now you had music that was much more expressionistic, uh, the, the tone poems where the music was intended to depict something. And uh, I think uh, uh, Holst, Mars, the bringer of war, was a musical depiction of mechanized destruction. And if you go to Spotify and, and, and download that, if you're not familiar with it and hear it, you'll, you'll hear it in there. You'll hear the tanks. You'll hear the explosions. And towards the end, there's this big musical explosion crescendo. And then it's followed by this a few a few seconds of of eerie silence and then the music starts up again uh it's uh, it, it's quite a moving piece when you put it in that context but it, and it wasn't just uh wasn't just uh, uh gustav Faust. you had uh, uh charles marie vidor who was a french uh, organist and composer who wrote his uh fifth organ symphony uh, during the Great War, and uh, which was very musically impressionistic, breaking from the traditions of other organ music of, say, Johann Sebastian Bach, and then Vidor promptly got himself killed in the Great War. Um, you have uh, Maurice Ravel, who was uh, a truck driver in France during uh, uh, the Great War, and uh, who went on to create uh, uh, some wonderful pieces of music which were very melodic and rather lush, but were uh, was a, a departure from what he would have written before the Great War, especially when two of his childhood friends were killed on the same day at the Battle of the Somme. Yeah, that's fascinating. And then, of course, on the other side of the coin for music is theater and how theater may have evolved. And I think maybe the most popular movement to come out of that era is the one that anyone's even heard of perhaps is the Dada movement. And of course, most people believe that, you know, theater needs to have a structure to it, that it needs to be socially relevant, that it needs to have some sort of morality involved. And, you know, Dada really took all of that and threw it out the window. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it was, it was anti-art. Yeah, it was really, I mean, I guess theater of the absurd is is kind of uh, the easiest way to describe it. But I mean, they went so far as the, the story goes, how they came up with the term 
Dada, Dadaism is that they opened up a dictionary and just pointed to the first word that they saw, and it was, it was, it was Dada, which uh, in French means hobby horse, um, <laughs> and, and that's how that art form, uh, you, you know, began. And they just, there's lots of great, fascinating, kooky stories about Dadaism that, of course, was pretty popular for a few decades after that. I mean, uh, you know, just pulling out ripping up newspapers and, and throwing, uh, you know, words in a bag and then performing them out of a bag as if it's some sort of scene and just making what you could out of it. But in terms of theater, the the Great War was definitely uh, a wonderful uh, source material for, for lots of great theatrical works. Most, most recently, in my memory, is, of course, War Horse. Um, which which really used World War One kind of as its centerpiece. This this kid who who gets an affinity with this horse, and they go through World War One together. Can you think of any other you know great pieces of of theater or art that really sprung from the Great War or or used it as a backdrop? Well, if you go back to 1918, and we talked about how the Great War affected the arts in Europe, let's talk for a moment. I mentioned at the outset that the United States got off rather easy. But when the United States finally entered the war and started sending men and materials and women overseas, um, it created a... Uh, a vacuum in some of the larger cities like Chicago, Detroit, certainly New York. Uh, and that's when you saw uh, a lot of rural uh, blacks, African-Americans moving up from the South to fill those jobs that were now available in the North. And uh, that's right there in the around 1918, 1919, 1920. That's when you see the beginning of the Harlem Renaissance. And uh, you see a lot of black enclaves opening up in, in these large cities, the most famous one being Harlem in New York. You see right around 1918, jazz in New Orleans start to float up the Mississippi River, uh, led by Louis Armstrong, stopping first in St. Louis, uh, going off to the side to Kansas City making its way up to Chicago and then to to New York. So, you know, maybe no great war, maybe no jazz movement. And of course, once you have the black jazzers in Harlem, then you have the white Jewish, white Jewish composers for musical theater like George Gershwin, uh, Richard Rogers, uh, Jerome Kern, uh, uh, going up uh, here, the black jazzers in Harlem at the different clubs and then going back downtown and putting those rhythms into uh, the Broadway musicals, well, you could trace that back to the, to, to the Great War. Um, there was a movement in popular music where you saw a lot of uh, pop, pop tunes, popular songs come out of, of uh, World War I around 1917, 1918. Woodrow Wilson tried very hard to keep the United States out of war, and that was the popular movement society at the time. But once they made the commitment, George M. Cohan wrote his only standalone song that was not written to go into one of his shows, and that was over there. And it was written specifically to generate uh, enthusiasm for going over there. There was a whole 
movement of reviews, uh, not necessarily book musicals, because they really weren't fully developed yet around 1918. But the Vaudeville Review was, was very popular, and many composers wrote songs about the Great War to put into these reviews. You know, and of course, how this relates back to to then and now is, you know, a lot of my reading the last few days is, you know, the reason why the, the flu pandemic of 1918 was so substantial and spread so quickly is really in large part because of the Great War. I mean, all of the soldiers coming home and 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 uh, there was this great Philadelphia, this great parade in Philadelphia that the, the government tried to shut down. But they're like, no, 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 the war is over, that everyone's coming home. And they said they had, you know. 500,000 people in Philadelphia gathering together for this parade celebrating the end of World War One, and not 10 days later, you know, 25% of those people were in the hospital with the Spanish flu. Um, yeah, I don't think they knew about the social distancing yet. Let's, uh, let's transition a little bit into, you know, what you think this pandemic will mean to art uh, moving forward. Maybe not just theater art music, uh, visual arts, you know, for me, I wonder, you know, we're, we're, we're in the, in the moment where, uh, social distancing and stay at home orders are beginning to be lifted in some capacity, minimal capacities in, in where we are in Kansas city. Um, but I wonder what that means in terms of theater. Like I've heard other people talk about trying to socially distance themselves in the theater, which to me goes against what really theater is about. I mean, I understand the importance and absolutely agreed with it. But I've there was a study done by the Old Globe Theater a few weeks ago where they looked into socially distancing their patrons, seating, seating patrons every other row to begin with, and then trying to space them apart, you know, four to six feet. Um, and what they came up with was if they tried to implement a model of that, sort they could only seat about 19 percent of their house which i think every theater producer would tell you that's just not sustainable you mean you know if we we have a we have a 200 and you know 40 seat theater and if we could only seat 19 percent of our house that would only be able to bring in 45 people at a time and honestly we'd we'd lose less money if we just canceled the shows um so i i don't think that that is a model that that is sustainable uh but what do you what what other things do you think might you might see in terms of art and art presentations as a result of COVID nineteen? Well, I I think that gradually it will all come back around. Uh, we'll get back to where you could have there'll be a vaccine for it one day, uh, and I think people will look back somewhat nostalgically on on uh, before this pandemic. Uh, when and I, I think that the lesson that people might take from this, even after things start to return to normal, is that I think people in general will feel more vulnerable to maybe another kind of virus, another kind of disease. So I think people will be more cautious about uh, uh, social interactions. Uh, I don't know when people will feel comfortable just shaking hands or hugging again, but I, I might point out that where musical theater is concerned, that musical theater tends to follow trends. It doesn't tend to set them. Uh, so I, I don't know that we'll see some great American musical that will be 
uh, innovative telling the story of the pandemic because once we get through this, people don't, I don't think they're going to want to be reminded of it. <laughs> what about programming? I know you and I have spoken about this in the past about uh, Harold Prince's great line about, you know, some people come to the theater to, to be tickled and some people come to see a little blood drawn. Do you think that in kind of using that statement as a template, what do you think theater audiences, I mean, everyone's been really for the most part self-isolating and shut indoors for we're coming up on two months and in some cases we might get close to 90 days what do you think the audiences are going to want to see they're not going to want to see Sweeney Todd I can tell you that (laughs) no when when times are bad people want to go to the theater to be tickled Uh, during the depression that's why you had all these pretty fluffy lighthearted show anything goes uh, it's probably the only musical that really survives from the 1930s. Uh, you, you're, you're not going to see, especially in musical theater, you're not going to see uh, any heavy-handed musicals. People are going to want to be, they're going to, I think they're going to want lightness and sweet. So like Les Miserables, <laughs> for example, I mean, that's that's a pretty heavy. Well, yeah, maybe because it's uplifting at the end and there mm. is redemption and and the songs are great. Yeah, yeah, maybe. But uh, I mean, that's just such an interesting that's an interesting discussion. I mean, you think about plays like Rent, where I mean, in my in my mind, it's like, man, Rent, that's such a great play. And then I revisited it a few months ago. I'm like, man, this is really depressing and this is really dark. Well, the AIDS. And sure. Does, it, does an AIDS play into Rent? Oh, absolutely. It's a huge part of it. But uh, I, I, I bring Rent up because it's coming up on its I mean, next year is Rent's. I think it's 25th anniversary or 30th anniversary. And I mean, you would expect to see a show like that that's produced pretty often to begin with to have some sort of resurgence in, in an anniversary type of year. But I think I agree with you. I, I don't know that I would want to rush out to the to the theater or a movie and see anything that was depressing because this has been a pretty depressing time on its own. Yes. And then I wonder I wonder how the, how the culture shifts in terms of you know, in, in the United States, for example, we don't see a lot of people walking around wearing face masks. And for a little while, at least, that's going to be kind of a new normal for most of us. And how does that work its way into art? I mean, a great example is I just saw, you know, the National World War One Museum and Memorial here in Kansas City. Um, they just put out uh, some material just a few days ago uh, with the iconic I want you, Uncle Sam, right? You, you know, the iconic picture I'm talking about. Yeah. But it's that iconic photo and it says, I want you to wear a face mask. And it's that photo with Uncle Sam that has a surgical face mask on, um, which is very powerful. And I just wonder how that's gonna how that's gonna proliferate into society and, and into art, the new normals of of face masks and stuff like that. I have been uh, I've seen I've seen a lot of signs of people pulling together and cooperating and uh, see a lot more families out on the street walking uh, with their children. Uh, That's been nice to see. I think uh, our, our priest actually made an excellent point. I thought uh, at our church service a few Sundays ago in his homily, he said that it's not a matter of, uh, I will wear a face mask if, if you wear a face mask, it's my face mask protects you. 
and not if, but and your face mask protects me. And that should be the attitude that my face mask protects you and your face mask protects me. And um, by and large, I, I see that kind of attitude and I think that that's, that's very hopeful. Um, I'm not sure how that will translate itself into art, but I'll tell you, we have a lot of creative people in the theater industry and somebody will figure out a very clever, innovative way to do it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, for the most part in, in the worst of times, people really have a great knack of coming together and banding together. And I agree with you. I think we're seeing a lot of that. And, and to that end, I think that's what's so special about theater. Um, you know, the, the human need to come together, to gather together and have a shared experience. Um, and I don't think that, that that's, I mean, I know that's not going anywhere. That's been around since the Greeks and it's been tested time and time again. And it's just such a fundamental need. So I look forward to the day uh, that we can do that again in a, in a safe and responsible manner. Um, well, George, you know, here on every episode of the peanut gallery, we like to kind of wrap up with a, a story, an anecdote uh, sorts, whether it be from the peanut gallery or not. And I thought that, it's your uh, turn. yeah, I thought that maybe we could end this episode with that great, great story uh, that you've told about Irving Berlin. Well, uh, Irving Berlin had joined, joined the army and was uh, stationed at the uh, cap uh, um, camp Yaphank out on, out on Long Island. And, uh, he, he already had had a reputation for uh, being a published songwriter and the, uh, the camp commander went to Irving Berlin and said, would you put together a show uh, for the camp as a fundraiser? We could sell tickets to you know, people in Manhattan and we'll raise money to build a new uh, rec hall here at the camp. And he said, yes, I'll do that if I can be exempt from 5 a.m. Reveille. So that's when he wrote the song, Oh, How I Hate to Get Up in the Morning. And uh, so that was a World War I song. And he actually went on tour in, uh, during the Great War, uh, during World War I, with that show. And it was called, uh, was called Yip Yip Yapank. <laughs> that was the name of it. That was the name of the review, Yip Yip Yapank. Uh, but he wrote a song that was going to be used as the finale. But he thought, he, he was an immigrant. He and his family came over from the Ukraine, from Russia, when he was five in like 1888, I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, his original name was, uh, uh, was uh, Israel Baleen. And so he felt that this country was, was very good to him. And he wrote a song that was, that on reflection as to whether to put it into the show or not, he thought this is too heartfelt about how much I love this country. And I'm not sure that a song like this is going to play that well at the end of this lighthearted review called Yip Yip Yampang. So he took it out of the show and he put it away, put it away in his song trunk. 20 years later, 
25 years later, when uh, World War II was was in uh, going, uh, Kate Smith was going to uh, sing a patriotic tribute on a live radio broadcast, and the uh, radio studio people uh, contacted Irving Berlin and asked him to write an original song for Kate Smith to sing. And he didn't have time enough to write it. So he pulled out that song, which had not seen the light of day in over 20 years, and gave it to Kate Smith to sing that night live on the radio. The song was God Bless America. That is an amazing story to think that that song was in basically a trunk for 20 years, and now it is such an anthem, such a, a rallying cry for for so many people. I mean, it's sung during <laughs> during the seventh inning at baseball games, and, and to think it was written for the Great War is incredible. Yeah, and Irving Berlin, as I said, he felt that it was too personal to put it into one of his shows. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, George, uh, that's going to do it for us. Uh, everyone at home, stay safe, stay healthy. And, uh, you know, for George Harder, I'm Tim Scott. Thanks for listening. Pleasure's all mine. Thank you.